Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Ruth King. Ruth King is an international teacher in the insight meditation tradition, a recognized diversity consultant to leaders and organizations, a life coach, and the author of Healing Rage and a new book, Mindful of Race, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. She's also the creator of the Mindful of Race training program. This conversation with Ruth King is provocative, it's challenging, and it asks us to look at ourselves in new and different ways with an open heart. Here's my conversation with Ruth King. I want to begin, Ruth, by having you introduce both yourself and your new book, Mindful of Race, to our audience by sharing a bit about the rivers in your own life, the antecedents that came together to form the writing of Mindful of Race. Oh, thank you, Tammy. Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic and it's a big question and I don't know if there's ever been a time um, in my adult life where race wasn't part of the fragrance the um, atmosphere the you know kind of the main river of concern if you will I mean I remember so early on um, you know witnessing my great-grandmother pacing and worrying. Um, I must have been around seven or eight years old. And um, I just remember how difficult it was for her, how much she struggled with um, trying to care for us and our bodies, these black bodies we were in in South Central Los Angeles, and how she would pace and worry. And, and, and what I remember so much is that I couldn't comfort her. And I wanted to. And I remember saying to myself early on, I just don't want to go out like that. You know, I, I think my great grandmother would be happy I'm doing walking meditation now instead of pacing the floor. But it, there, there's just been many, um, many knocks on my heart uh, and consciousness for as long as I can remember that 
that race was just kind of intimately woven into a tight tapestry of my community life, my personal life, um, what shaped the conversations in my family, um, our relationships with each other, our relationship and activity within the community, um, and my work in the world, which has always been involved in culture change and leadership development and psychotherapy work that's about trying to mend the severed sense of belonging that so many of us feel, you know, regardless of race. Uh, but just this territory have been has been profoundly important to me for as long as I can remember. And when I um, stepped into the the arena of mindfulness meditation and um, some of these Buddhist principles that um, specialize in suffering, if you will, uh, and how to really work with the heart and mind in a way that uh, reduces the struggle and supports a direct knowing of what moment-to-moment liberation or freedom can feel like, there was just something really important about that, that uh, stuck with me as a as a form of a verified faith in a spiritual tradition that invited you to look at how you were thinking and the impact of the way you were thinking and had been conditioned to think on on your life. So, uh, you know, long story fast forward. I mean, I went through many periods of rage. I, that was a, that was my first book where I really needed to um, pay homage, if you will, to rage and the ways that that intense energy had um, kind of protected me in a false way. It was a false refuge, but there was some sense of energetic about it that that kept me on fire enough to illuminate uh, a certain deeper truth that was wanting to come through. So just walking, you know, on fire, working with matters of the heart, being um, devoted, if you will, even if if not knowing I was, to wanting to heal, wanting to connect, wanting to figure it out, seeking ways that served, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I it just doesn't surprise me that I'm where I am right now, looking at race and looking at um how the heart is is the is a mass we- weapon of healing when it comes to looking at matters of rage, and um, that rage is also legitimate in that in that walk. That there's lots to be upset about, and uh, lots of ways that our rage can, uh, or whatever our upset is around ra- race, can actually be a teacher for us, a healer for us, a lover for us, as we kind of move through the world and recognize that we all have impact. The heart as a mass weapon of healing. I've never heard that phrase before. I like that, Ruth. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's something to, I mean, I tried for so long to do this work around race without involving the heart. And it just, uh, it was just too hard. It was too much work to try to do this without, um, you know, I often say to people, you know, what would it be like to um, have a fight with somebody while holding their hand? And, and, you know, I mean, just the the idea of that contact, 
but also the fear is truth moving through. Can you do that with a sense of, of care and tenderness and remembering that we share a humanity, um, that, 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 you know, that, that we're tender, that we're all kind of, um, fragile in some ways, uh, in different ways, but we, we are, we, you know, we, we mainly want to belong, but our conditioning plays a big role in having us believe that that's not always our first instinct. Um, yeah. So I'm going to take a few risks in this conversation. And, you know, one of the lines I pulled from Mindful of Race is, humility is an experience we open up to when we're willing to take risks. I humbly hear, first of all, I want to begin when you said that about you can't have a fight if you're holding somebody's hand. And God knows I'm not planning to have a fight with you as part of this conversation, Ruth. I am just planning to have a deep conversation. But I'm wondering if symbolically you would be willing to hold my hand a bit, if that's okay, Mm. as we go forward into what I think are some really challenging topics that you bring up in the book Mindful of Race that I want to talk about. Mm. So how do you feel about that? A little audio hand-holding. You totally have my consent for that. All right. um, I would delight in us diving into these waters together. Wonderful. I'm going to reach out to our listeners as well in that spirit, Mm -hmm. reaching my hand out. You know, right in the beginning of the book, you basically ask people to come along with you. This is at least my reading of it. And understand that you're either part of a dominant racial group, a white racial group, or a subordinate racial group, a person of color. Mm -hmm. And I noticed right there at the beginning of the book, when you were talking about these two groups, I thought, I have a lot of questions about this. Are all readers Mm -hmm. really going to find themselves saying, I'm in one or the other, period? And I wonder if we could start there and you could help Mm -hmm. our listeners Mm -hmm. understand that. Yeah, good question. Well, um, In the book, I'm starting with something even more fundamental, which is that we're all good individuals. We've all experienced traumas and losses and, you know, disappointments and lust and longings and have different levels of brilliance and um, temperament. So, So we're all individual in the sense that we're all human beings, right? And we're all part of racial group identities. And some of us are members in many racial group identities. That means, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an African-American woman, if you will, you know, lesbian, I can add that. I mean, there's a whole list of identities that I have and that we each have. So where these identities really speak to certain membership groups, whether we're active in them or not, our social realm is still projecting on the collective. You know, people look at us and they deal with us as individuals, but they also deal with us as a racial group identity. You know, the, the for example, the impulse collectively to look at dark bodies as, as, as with a fear behind it, a criminalization behind it, white people as, you know, um, privileged, you know, I mean, we all have these categories that go on top of the group identity. So whether you agree with whether 
you know, you're you're a member of a racial group identity or not, doesn't mean you're not a part of one. Doesn't mean that society isn't relating to you as one. And the the uh, so so I don't think it's an either or. And I think if we look at race alone, we could say just looking at our racial identity at the social level in society in terms of who has power collectively is my race and the part of the dominant group or subordinated group. So I'm pointing to a, a general observation that we can see around dominance being white skinned folks, subordinated groups are people of color at a social level, not so much at an individual level. If we look at our other identities, whether it's gender, uh, sexuality, um, um, class, and, and, you know, abilities and things like that, we'll find that we might be dominant in race, but subordinated in gender. So I think we can all relate to group identities that are both dominant and subordinated, depending on which lens we're looking through at any given time. And what I'm pointing to in my work, in this book in particular, is looking at the dominant and subordinated dynamics of racial group identity. And I'm inviting people to really look at the collective way that this constellation, the ways we've been conditioned around race is playing at the collective level as a constellation of harm or healing in our social realm. I'm going to read a a quote from Mindful of Race that I thought was really significant and points to what you're saying, especially for white people. And here's the quote, when individuals are not aware of their membership in a white racial group, when they have not examined what it means to be white with other white people, they're able to maintain themselves as good individuals, therefore maintaining their dominant group status without being aware of or responsible for its collective impact on other races. This is how racism is perpetuated, the privilege of not knowing or caring. Mm-hmm. So that really struck me. And I was wondering if you could help, really help our listeners understand for the people who are listening, who from the outside, someone would say, oh, you belong in that white racial group category. And it's important that you see that. By not seeing it, uh, you're perpetuating racism. That's a strong statement. Yeah. And and I, I think it's a it's something that can be observed. Um, you know, I mean, we can we can just check it out and look for ourselves. But in order to check it out, we have to be willing to look at collective momentum, social norms, not just our individual experience. See, what's so important to understand is anybody in a dominant group. Let's just let's just zoom out a little bit. There's dominance around gender, right? So there's male dominance when it comes to gender. There's heterosexual dominance when it comes to sexual identity. There's, you know, class dominance, you know. So we can we can see dominance in terms of the shape it takes, you know, when we turn on the meet the news, when we go out to see the doctor options we have when we, you know, look in any, any, you know, we can look now at the house 
of representatives in our political realm, and we see some shifts around gender. But when you're a dominant anything, characteristic of being dominant is that you you look from a lens of individual. Characteristic of being dominant is that you don't see collective because you don't have to. You know, you you know the the lens is one of I'm a good person. I'm a I'm a I'm a good individual. I worked from my you know I earned and worked for this and I've worked hard and so I deserve it. Um, I'm like everybody else. Uh, you know, I've had many people say to me, oh, when I, white people say to me, when I look at you, I don't see color. Well, that's an individual response. That's a, that, you know, the only people that don't see color are, are people in dominant positions, you know. You would never hear a person of color say that they don't um, see color. You know, when I look at you, I don't see color. So there's something to be learned and um, to wake up to around how this plays not just at an individual level, but at a systemic level, at a social level, at, at the power dynamic level, you know? So these are important things for us to kind of step back and, and, and see. Most of us, if again, zoomed out, most of us can readily identify with our subordinated status. Mm-hmm. We can see it right now, like women are really um, coming out in a big way right now with certain movements and things like that, um, you know, confronting the patriarch or, patriarchy or the dominant dynamics that's um, in our systems right now. That is, is not a, a new dynamic, but this, there's this kind of force coming from the subordinated group identity of women saying to, 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 the, to the patriarchy's in power, hell no, right? Or yeah. no, this is, right? So the same dynamic happens with race, but anybody in the dominant seat seldom sees themselves as membered. Um, they see themselves as good individuals trying to do the, you know, the best that they can or wondering why you're, you know, making them look like the, the bad guy. I've had so many people come through my, so many white men come through my training, for example, and say to me, I'm really trying to understand this. So many people assume I'm a Trump supporter, for example. And I'm not. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not that. And that's an example of seeing, of course, you're not that. And, and, and neither am or my grandkids are, you know, because they wear hoodies, you know, but <laughs> criminals. But the, the social projection that we're often having to manage is not just our individual identity, but the pervasive membership that we're in and the collective impact that that has on other groups. Well, I want to make sure I'm understanding this because, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. I'll just get personal. And I think that's the way that the conversation will really land for our listeners as they think about this personally as well in their own lives. It's easy for me to identify, as you mentioned, with my subordinated status, in my Mm -hmm. case as a lesbian and as a Jewish person of Jewish origin. Mm -hmm. That's easy. I get that. I have always, I, I feel the pain of it. I feel the oppression associated with it. I get it. But seeing the dominant role that I have as a white woman and seeing that as a racial identity group, that that's my racial identity group, that has been invisible to me until recent years. I never saw it. Mm-hmm. So help me understand why would I not see that? 
Why does that go invisible? Well, it goes invisible. Invisible. It goes invisible because characteristic of being a dominant anything is that you don't affiliate. There's no feeling into the collective. It's the norm. So it, it you know, it's just not a habit of mind. It's not a habit of heart. Um, it's 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 a it's a it's a conditioning. It's it's a, you know, of course, you know, it's it's just not questioned, and that kind of. I don't know this or or um, not touching into that is characteristic of being in a dominant group. That's why we miss each other in these conversations around race, because white people tend to enter with, you know, I'm, I'm a good individual. People of color enter with a history, a, a lineage, stories, collective pain, you know, impact that might have happened just, just a few hours ago. And and that's not understood. The only way to understand this is to be with other white people and, and be in this investigation of, of, you know, why is it that other people seem to know about whiteness except us? What, what keeps us from coming together and exploring this territory? And all of the vagueness, the complexity, the itching, scratching, I don't know this, or, you know, we get together and it doesn't feel like we're getting anything done. I mean, I've had many white people say, how are we going to do race work if we don't have people of color in the room? And to me, that's precisely the issue. <laughs> you know, that, that it, 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 I think for white people, it often feels like, you know, the, the, the race thing is the color thing. It's not the white thing. And that's what I think we need to create some different narrative around. Mm-hmm. Now, Ruth, you recommend that white people form what you call racial affinity groups and that we put ourselves in these intentional spaces and do some inquiry together. And I, and I want to talk about that. You offer some questions for exploration that people can do at a personal, individual level and also in terms of racial group identity. And I wonder if you could give some examples. Now I've decided to get, you know, a dozen or half a dozen of my white friends together in this, you called it a RAG, a racial affinity group. What are we going to do? As you mentioned, people are like, what are we going to do? But help give us some direction here, kinds of questions. Well, yeah, I don't have the questions right in front of me, but here's what I'm proposing. I'm proposing racial affinity groups, which I'm calling RA groups instead of RAG. That was just an un- un- unfortunate you know, acronym. <laughs> But I'm proposing that all races get in racial affinity groups, not just white people. Okay. Because I think we all need to examine our um, conditioning, our habits of mind, the stories we've been telling ourselves or believing, the perceptions that we have around race that guides our action and opens or closes our heart. I think we all need to be in racial affinity groups, not just white people. And what's happening is what what I'm encouraging is that they not be groups of 12, actually. I'm encouraging smaller numbers of people um, because the smaller the number, the more intimate the group, um, the more easier it is to schedule with people, uh, the more you can hold each other in, 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 a, in a point of focus. These Racial affinity groups are intended, are, are very prescribed around specific questions that invite us to um, share 
what we've learned about being a race or not learned and what we think that's about. So there's a number of questions to look at that. But the structure that I'm proposing, because, you know, some some affinity groups get together and they, they stu- study things like history of other races or they might go to museums and, you know, or they, you know, might take themselves to other neighborhoods so that they can work out, up, work, you know, understand other races. I'm specifically inviting people to look at sharing their stories around their conditioning from their family. What was what was at risk um, if you spoke? I mean, what would kick you out of your membership? You know, even if it wasn't an acknowledged group identity, you know, we all have grown up with these stories around the table that were spoken or not spoken, but felt, and that that had impact. You know, one of the stories I share in the book is, you know, a a question I have, especially in this country. Um, When I go back and I look at the images of lynching, for example, uh, the pictures and, and that it was a festival for, you know, I mean, the community came out and the kids came out while these bodies were you know, being burnt, right? So the question I have, just, just you know, we can pull any number of examples, but what happened to the heart and minds of the people that were witnessing that, the children, for example? How did they reconcile that in their head? What, what would have happened if they had a strong question or challenge about that? What, what would have happened? I, I, you know, and, and, and how do you think watching something like that or witnessing that impacted your ability to be intimate or to share different things. So these are all questions that this this is part of our history. This has impacted our relational field. This has impacted how we see each other as human or not, or how we kind of shifted our view around that and how it lived in the hearts and were passed on from one generation to the next. I'm interested in, in the examination of our lineage, and I think we can get strands of it as we go back and, and look at our stories. You know, how did the Black families deal with the fact that their children didn't come home? You know, what did that, how did that impact your view and and your um, your capacity for intimacy, you know, or your connection or disconnection with your own children in this life, your, your heart being calloused, you know? So I'm interested in us kind of going back to the scene of our conditioning with with new resources. And the resource that I'm bringing to the table of this is is mindfulness practice. This this mindfulness meditation practice that supports us to bear witness to our lives through the lens of our heart and and um, um, through a wise heart, if you will. So we're not just going back and we're raw and tossed around and ungrounded. We're going back very intentionally with with the heart mind of wanting to understand, wanting to deepen our connection, wanting to be more in the human race, wanting to understand why this why the chronic fatigue and repetitive motion injury of race and racism keeps reoccurring and what do I have to do with that? That's kind of what I'm inviting people to do. So um, that's what I think, the, you know, there are many questions, but that's kind of fundamental 
to what the racial affinity group is intending to be a safe space for us to investigate without turning away and deepen and transform our narratives and our relationship to race and racism. Now, I'm glad you clarified, Ruth, that these RA groups are for people to meet within their own racial group, whatever that might be, not just mm-hmm. for white people to meet. I think I was emphasizing that part because previously to reading your book, Mindful of Race, I'd heard a lot of, you know, a people of color meditation group will be gathering tonight, you know, at 6 p.m., whatever, to talk about being people of color at this meditation retreat. But I'd never seen, oh, there's going to be a group of white people talking in a group as a racial affinity group. Like that idea, I think, is new, at least for me, that, you know, one of the quotes from your book is, you don't need to recruit people of color to wake up to whiteness at least initially, that you can get into this group of a a small group and really go deep and learn a lot. I thought that was very Mm eye-opening. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, in some of the spaces I've been in where people of color have wanted to form affinity groups to, is usually out of being, you know, constantly in a predominantly white environment. Mm-hmm. And what, what white people don't understand about that is the vulnerability and the fear and the anxiety that can come up, especially if you're doing meditation work, you know, that there can be some real things that arise, right? And to be able to ground a bit with other people that are like you can can actually um, be a form of, of deep compassion because there's an understanding of dominant culture. The reason that becomes conflictual for a lot of white people is why are they separating out or why are they doing this is we're back to the individual mindset again, you know, as opposed to collective. And that there isn't a felt sense of what it feels like to really be a dominant group, How what impact that could have or what that could trigger or activate in other people of color. So it's it's the same dominant subordinated dynamic where, where white people are saying, we're good people. There's nothing to fear here. You know, we can just use this practice to support ourselves through. But for some people, there's a need to have a, a bit more grounding. So, I mean, that's, that's something I'm starting to see in a number of insight communities. And I think there's People have different feelings about it. But when I look at it, it's more that dynamic of dominant and subordinated. And when do when do people of color get to go into these institutions and feel like, you know, is there a way to feel like we can kind of ground here, even when we get triggered with our own fear stories and, um, you know, trauma stories that can be activated when you surrender into um, meditation practice? Mm-hmm. Now, talk some about how mindfulness meditation can help us have these edgy conversations and edgy inner explorations and provide a type of support to our inquiry and investigation. How you see that? Yeah. Well, I can say very personally that um, being you know, my practice and mindfulness and um, even more so teaching it 
uh, has it, it's actually kind of recalibrated my nervous system to some extent. Uh, I feel like I can, um, there's a lot more inner stability, a lot more um, inner confidence and um, um, response instead of reactivity. I can sit with my edge a lot more than than I used to be able to do. Um, I feel like I, I, um, I'm aware of my impact and um how how much it hurts to harm because i'm kind of more in touch with how i've been harmed and how to not create that in the world so there's a bit more empathy and sensitivity um and compassion for our kind of um vulnerability if you will uh as humans in these bodies with all these quirks and you know and things that are amazing so the practice um, is usually something you you appreciate in retrospect after you've developed a certain momentum of retraining the heart and mind to stay present to what's here instead of the story you have about it. So this is a practice that I think is just um, uh, a refinement of being able to know freedom in a given moment, even if it doesn't last a long time, but you can get a glimpse, you can touch freedom through this stillness. And it has a bit of a homeopathic effect, you know, it's kind of like a little drop of it can be so potent that it, it creates a certain spaciousness internally that you then can rest in and trust. Um, it's hard to kind of know this unless you're doing this. But it's it's what what we're really doing is kind of reprogramming our capacity to bear witness to our lives and to live in our skin, <laughs> in this body, in this lifetime, um, with a bit more presence and and care, care for ourselves and care for others. So there's many tools, you know, um, in the Buddhist teachings and the mindfulness. Uh, uh, practices and principles, tools that support us in this kind of renegotiation or regulation of our heart and mind uh, that we can practice. And one of the things I'm really encouraging people to do, in addition to having a daily sitting practice, the teachings really support us in looking at how we've conditioned ourselves to perceive others, especially around race. There's a way we receive and then you know, perceive, and then we have thoughts and emotions about what we're perceiving, and then that forms a view, and then the view is reinforced when we perceive the same thing again. So we get this groove, what's called, um, you know, um, um, uh, it's a mechanism of perceiving, but it's kind of the misperception that we have about race, all of us. Yeah, uh, uh, I can't say all of us all the time, because sometimes we're perceiving something that's just horribly what it is. But often our perceptions are based on how we've perceived something from the past and it's formed this groove. So the practice of mindfulness and the principles um, of uh, Buddhist philosophy, I found I find profoundly um, uh, impactful for kind of deconstructing our racial 
imprint or um, um, mechanisms of perceiving where we can slow it down and kind of de what uh, what one of the I think is um, Michael um, Yellow. Uh, anyway, one of our native brothers has taught us about this term decolonizing the mind. Mm -hmm. we, de we decolonize the mind. We deconstruct the habits of mind because we bring a broader resource to it. We bring a capacity to be with it real time instead of the layering that happens from the past or the fear we have about the present. And right in that sliver is our capacity to um, maybe maybe catch our breath, um, settle in our bodies, open our hearts and mind to see a bigger picture than our own fixation in the moment. Hi friends, my name is Jono Fisher. I'm the executive director of the Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is a new non-profit organization dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. Some students from Southwest Uganda recently wrote to us and said, in spite of war and violence, Sounds True's materials are helping us really change. We can laugh more. We believe in life again. We can love again. And we are even beginning to allow forgiveness and compassion to enter our consciousness. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives, or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org I'm wondering, Ruth, would you be comfortable sharing a way when you slowed your mind down, you were able to see a certain type of bias or some type of jumping to a conclusion based on the past about race, how mindfulness helped you do that? Hmm. Let me see if I can think about that, um, a specific example, because uh, I think what I can uh, be in touch with more than anything is when I have sat on my cushion and um, of late it's just really been a strong fixation with what's happening politically, right? Um, with 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 immigrants and and mm -hmm. just avoid. I mean, I, the list is long. Yeah. So uh, when I sit down with that, what I experience right away is just all of my energy inside the body is just on fire. My heart is beating really fast, and I'm absolutely convinced that how I'm seeing the situation is right. I mean, shrink wrap airtight, ziplocked, absolute, fixed on um, the view that I have about what's happening. And what I begin to do, and, and um, I've done this many times, is 
when I shift my attention from the story I have, uh, which is right, by the way, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> when I shift my attention from the story I'm having, from the view I'm holding, to looking at how the body is holding it, what I see is that I'm on fire, I'm burning, my heart is tight, my body is hurting, and I give that my attention for a little while. I give that my attention a little while. And I bring a certain care to the fact that I'm the one that's suffering in that moment. It, 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 it's not that how I'm seeing it may not be how it is, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at my relationship to it. Is there a way I can be with this without hurting so much, without this contraction? Um, because my stories are full of hate, you see. I mean, I'm just pissed off, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it shouldn't be this way. And it, I mean, the list is long. I'm in my rap about it. I've written about it. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm sick of it. I, I actually can feel a certain tiredness of just the view that I have, but it's a wear and tear on me. So when I shift myself to caring about the the pain I'm actually feeling in that moment, instead of the righteousness I have about the moment, I start to soften a little bit. And I start to get a little real about um, uh, how I can give myself a break in this moment, which is major because, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, go do something and join, join something, but I'm not, it, it's not time for me to do that because what I would be doing is taking this, these seeds of, of rage with me. It reminds me of a story that I heard that the Dalai Lama told where someone, he was speaking here in the, in the, in the States and someone said, I can't stand what's happening to the bet, to bed. I want to come and fight. Tell me what I should do. And I think the Dalai Lama said something like, no, no, no. Take care of your own heart first, then come, then come. And there's just something about that that just so resonates with me because when we can take care of our hearts a little bit and, and, the, and, it, and we move from this place of rage to a place of fierce clarity, right, then the seeds we plant through our actions starts to have a different impact. Um, and, and we're present with what's happening instead of being in reactivity. And I think I got to a place where that's my preference, that I'm really wanting to use my energy in a way that it, it, it's not just being um, raw and thrown everywhere. I want to hone it so that it becomes medicine or that it becomes useful. I want to remember that my actions actually have impact on people and that I need to proceed with that kind of care. That matters to me. So these are some of the shifts that I make when I settle myself down. I settle myself down because then I can see more clearly what needs to be done. And then I can do it with more intention instead of reactivity. That to me is, is, um, has been um, a major shift uh, for me over the years with this practice. And it was the reason I wanted to bring the mindfulness technology, if you will, mm-hmm. to the table of racial distress so that we can enter and be in the conversation with a little bit more stability and clarity because there's much to be done around this issue. 
Mm-hmm. And we're not going to do it if we're raging and railing and um, hating, you know. I mean, a, a practice for me has been, can I say what needs to be said without hating anyone? Can I keep hate out of the, equi- the equation? Sometimes I can't, right? Mm-hmm. But, but that's my intention. That's, that's my practice. Uh, that's what I sit with. And Ruth, I know you work with coaching a lot of white individuals who are waking up from their individualness to their group identity, their racial group identity, and how mindfulness, and this is what I want to talk about, can be helpful in that waking up process where suddenly you realize, oh my God, I'm part of a dominant racial group and I didn't realize I was. Let's say you're a white man. Oh my God, I didn't realize this really. And I feel all of these different things, stupid for not knowing this. I feel guilty. I feel, you know, ashamed, on and on. How can mindfulness practice get us to the heart of the matter and not spinning around in these various reactions to, you know, how stupid yeah. I've been? Yeah. Well, you know, there is, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about mindfulness practice is it, it teaches us to look at the nature of our experience. And, um, and this is fundamental. We want to get this before we then start taking care of things. This fundamental view, which is understanding that what happens to us often is not personal, is not permanent, and is not perfect. You know, so just as a background atmospheric kind of notion, you know, stuff happens in life. We're all going to get hurt, you know, you know, as they say, shit happens, suffering happens, um, disappointments happens, people, ignorance is, is, there's no ignorance free zones, you know. So this is a part of our human condition that we don't have to necessarily take personally. And if we look at our experience for any given time, the moment we sit on the cushion and close our eyes, the most immediate reality we're going to be in touch with is how constantly changing our experience is. Our thoughts are constant. The, what the sounds are constantly changing. Our thoughts are constantly changing. The temperature in our body is changing. You know, the change is all there is. So there's, there's, there's a way that we need some fundamental views about the nature of our experience. You know, as crazy as this issue of racism is, it still has holes in it. There's no experience we can live twice, right? So I think we need, we need a, a, a big spread, uh, uh, a broad view in order to hold these experience so that we can then zoom on to where harm is happening. So I help a lot of people um, just look at that in their experience. Okay, so you're feeling shame. It's not going to be there all the time. You're feeling guilty about something. Let me know when that shifts. Let me know how that's feeling in the body. Let me know the story you have about it. Um, Is the story absolutely true? Where are you holding it in the body? How old is it? So we start investigating the stories we have about the words we're using to describe our experience. And we actually develop a broader language about what's happening because we'll throw guilt on top of something, right? Mm -hmm. But if we really investigate guilt, we start to see what the literal experience is of it inside the body, heart, and mind. Like what's what's that attached to? What's it coupled with? You know, where does it live in the body? 
How does it feel? Is it moving? Is it solid? You know, you know, so we can start to see what the actual experience of our stories are. And I think that's important. And the fact that they're always changing and our mind is also important. In fact, this is very important, I find, when I'm working with, with Black folks, for example, because sometimes our story around race is so coupled historically that the present moment that doesn't get any kind of aeration mm-hmm. because it's so tied to the historic. And so it gets, it gets, it gets bigger than life instantly. And we need to break it down. We need to try to break it down. It doesn't mean that we get rid of the history, but it means we relieve ourselves in the present moment so we can be more effective. So I think that having this broader view is really helpful um, because our stories about what's happening can can really, I mean, it's just not the deepest truth that wants to be told, right? So we don't have to believe the stories we have. There's something deeper in there. Usually underneath there, there's some kind of fear. There's some kind of shame we might have if we do something because we might be compromising our membership in privilege or something. So we, we need to look at how that's concocted and and um, what rewards, you know, what gratification, what danger, and what forms of escape we find ourselves in uh, when we hold tightly to the story we have. So these, this is a this is very a very fluid dynamic, but we're working fundamentally with some principles of our existence, and also really unpacking our stories uh, and seeing how they live in the body and how it's informing our choices and even lack of choices. Um, So these are important things to kind of unpack and aerate and um, care about. Now this teaching, life is not personal, permanent, or perfect. This is a chapter head of one of the chapters in Mindful of Race, and you just mentioned it. It's a it's a beautiful teaching. And I do have a question. I think when I hear life is not permanent, that part, I'm like, check, I get that. Life is not perfect. Okay, lots of evidence for that. But life feels personal. I mean, here you are, you're asking mm-hmm. us to talk about our lineage and our uh, you know family history and our family history with race. And that all feels very personal. So what do you mean exactly when you say that life's not personal? Well, what I mean is that um, there's a way that if we take, if we look at the Buddhist teachings, this is this is really speaking to the um, teachings on not self. And the teachings on not self is really saying that when you solidify strongly with anything, there's there's a degree of suffering you're going to be having because you're tightly wrapped around it. Um, and there's an assumption in there that is going to be permanent. And of course, things are changing all the time. So we really set ourselves up. It's not personal in the sense that we all suffer. We all find ourselves in places of disappointments, not getting what we want, being harmed, you know, um, having aspects of ourselves that are, you know, not wanted in a social realm. It's not personal in the sense at the individual level. Um, when I'm looking at not personal, I'm really trying to have us look at the, the, the momentum that's in our social realm is that is, I'm, I'm wanting us to look more at this collective level, the gestalt, the, the, the constellations. 
it's not personal when we live in a social realm that has habitually made dark bodies criminal. So I could take that personally, but what it is, is just, it's, it's a collective swarm, right? So I'm inviting us to look at it not being personal in that sense, because I'm looking mostly when it, when I'm looking at racism, I'm mainly looking at collective. I'm looking at collective norms and policies and practices that govern other people's lives at the collective level, at the group identity level, and the dominant and subordinated dance that reinforces it, you know? So that's what I mean by not personal. If I, if I were to take everything that happens around race and racism personally, and many of my people do, <laughs> um, it's a real burden. It's, it's, I mean, I've just had too many people die because of hypertension, high blood pressure, obesity. I mean, just, just suffering uh, from taking it personally. I think looking at it more collectively and looking at the fact of it and being able to bear witness to it and doing what can be done because you understand what you're capable of doing and not doing, I think there's some liberation in there. Mm -hmm. Let's just take this a little bit further and talk to that person who does feel any kind of violence or aggression against somebody of their own subordinate situation. They do feel it really personally. Oh, that just gets me so personally. That's how I feel it. What would be your recommendation to them to, of any kind to open their view in some way? Well, it may not be time for them to open their view, right? I mean, you know, um, this this kind of practice isn't for somebody that is in a crisis, right? This is a practice that supports those who can maybe turn around and kind of look at their life to see what's happening. Um, it's it's a contemplative practice in that way. If you're in a crisis, if you're in danger. You know, when I'm having to go down to the to the jail system because my grandson has been, uh, you know, put in jail one more time, you know, that feels very personal to me. I'm not going to sit and contemplate that I'm going to kick into action and take care of it. So sometimes we have to it sometimes it, it, we're dealing with the very fact that it's personal in those moments. But it's not personal in the sense that it's just happening to my grandson. It's happening to a lot of people that look like him. And that's what I mean by, you know, just really seeing it for what it is. It's not like it's personally to 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 my grandson, although I'm going to do everything I can to, to work with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, what I say to people is that you don't need um, mindfulness uh, meditation. You need a good therapist. Or, or you need, um, you know, you, you, you need a, you need a, re, you need a retreat, a healing retreat, or maybe you need to change your, you know, your ways of eating and um, uh, areas of, of addiction. Sometimes it's not sitting and, and just looking at your heart and mind. I think it takes a certain kind of um, uh, inner stability to do that with, with, with regularity. Um so I, I don't know if it's always the intervention. Some, I mean, I mean, I've, I remember when it wouldn't have been my intervention because of the trauma that was predominant in my life and the struggle and the ways I felt like I had to deal with it in order to survive. And then I reached a point where it's like I'm asking 
could there be another way of dealing with that? And that's when I think this 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 offers some fruit. If I'm asking that those kind of questions, is it possible for me to deal with this differently? Is it possible for me to not suffer so much as I'm doing what must be done? That's when I think this this provides the best medical care. Ruth, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the Buddhist teaching of wise speech as applied to these conversations about race, questions about race. I I notice often I end up keeping my mouth shut in situations because I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And I might be curious about something, whether it's conversations I want to have with white people or people conversations I want to have with people of color. I'm just I'm so nervous that I'm going to say something that's going to offend somebody or portray my ignorance that I'm just quiet. And I know that doesn't seem like wise speech to me. Uh, because it's, I'm not saying anything, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious what your guidelines w- would be for people who want to start having more of these very important conversations, but want to make sure that they don't do any harm in the process. Well, this is a real important question, Tammy. I'm so glad you asked it. I have a couple of ways I go at it. As as a white woman in a dominant group uh, around race, uh, one thing that I find at the collective level of many uh, dominant, you know, people in, in the dominant racial group, white folks, is this fear of um, not getting it right. The individual not getting it right. The individual wanting to be, you know, seen as having it together, as knowing, as, I mean, these are dominant characteristics. You know, we, 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 you know, this is part of the collusion that I think sometimes is within the, in the, in the body of dominance, that there is a social norm, a projection, and white people know this is not entirely true, that a projection of um, superiority, of having the resources, of knowing things, of being educated. I mean, there's a whole slew of um, uh, projections uh, that speak to the category of whiteness and dominance that even if people at the individual level are not buying it, so then the experience of dominance ends up being felt at the individual level and felt as, um, I don't want to say anything wrong. I'm going to be quiet. Uh, I hear this a lot, by the way. So this is not just Mm, your experience. But because white people don't know other white people's experience, it feels individual. But it's a a norm. It's it's part of of what I hear from um, a lot of white people. And what I think is kind of uh, happening on some level is this fear of coming out of hiding or speaking to whiteness or acknowledging collective or um, speaking out loud that vulnerability. The fear of, of um, the story is that I don't want to say it because I might get it wrong. But what I think at another level is happening is that I don't want to not break 
the perception that many people have about us having it all together. I don't want to look, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't have it together. So there's this kind of unconscious collusion um around perfection, as if there is such a thing, right? But around having it right, keeping it together, keeping the appearance of having it together, of not knowing. Now, we know there's vulnerability behind that. But I think there is that kind of um, uh, caution that white people have. I've had people say, well, when I go into these diversity uh, training discussions, the best thing for me to do is to not be dominant, I'll just sit back and not say anything. Well, that's actually a way of holding dominance, you know, the silence. One of the things I talk about in the book is around whiteness is that the collusion is around sameness, silence, and blindness. So I I encourage white people especially to be willing to risk being vulnerable and coming out of hiding because what it it's not like you're hiding on purpose, so please don't hear it that way. But what I think it does is it role models permission for other white individuals who are colluding with their experience being just theirs when it's really kind of a an experience of dominance that people are afraid to speak up. And then what happens is people of color end up over-efforting in the discussions because the the field in the room is probably very awkward and uncomfortable. And oftentimes people of color can't afford to not say something. So they end up carrying more of that weight than they should. Um, so that's why I have in the book, the 10 get out of jail free cards, you know, where, you know, every day you get 10 cards and on one side of the card, you write down how you put your foot in your mouth and the other side, what did I learn from it? And we just keep 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 inching our way up and out so that we can we can, you know, own and be vulnerable and learn from it and 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 share in our our foilties and our humanity around this stuff. I have my ten get out of jail free cards. I'm very grateful mm-hmm. for that. And I, I understand about not staying silent. But what would be your other wise speech guidelines for anybody involved on whatever side they may be in a conversation about race to help us have the real conversations that are needing to happen in our hearts? Yeah, well, I think we enter, I have a whole chapter in the book on how to talk about what disturbs you. But I think we have to enter the conversation knowing it's going to be messy at best. There's just no way you're not going to put your foot in your mouth. And I find that if you just start with that, okay, I'm, I'm going to put my foot in the mouth, my mouth, I'm, I'm going to do my best to, 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 to speak what's moving through me. And my intention is to connect. And I know that that, you know, I could say some really dumb stuff here, uh, but just stay with me on this. Part of what happens in the racial affinity group is that it is a, it is a, it's, it's a group where people are consenting to go there. They're consenting to take that dive together, right? They're consenting to show up and to do this work and support each other there. We need environments like that. And when white people have racial affinity groups, 
they have that kind of currency rolling in their lives, then when they get into these other kind of groups, it's it's uh, it's not so um, scary because they've been working on understanding whiteness, and that's what needs to be brought into the discussion more than anything else. The our conditioning and intimate experience of our conditioning and the impact that it has. Well, Ruth, there's a lot that you cover in your book, Mindful of Race. Uh, probably uh, my favorite section of the book, uh, we're not going to go into here, but it's a beautiful chapter on compassion and compassion practice, uh, where you teach compassion for other people, for yourself. It's just a gorgeous section of the book, I have to say. Really uh, broke my heart open. But I thought we would end our conversation. There are two chapters at the end of the book. One is on what white people can do with privilege, and then you have a, another section on what people of color must do together. And I, I wonder here if, as we end, you could just give a couple of suggestions that point our listeners in the right, mindful of race direction, starting with what white people can do with privilege. Just a couple pointers here. (laughs) Do we have to start with the white people? Oh, for heaven's sakes, Tammy. No, okay. (laughs) You want to start with what people of color must do together? Let's do it. No, I think this is totally perfect. Okay, a couple of things on what white people can do with privilege. They can use it to organize um, um, a human rights movement, not because of, you know, just because it's a it's an important thing that it's a it's a great use of of privilege, but that's pretty grandiose, not impossible, but grandiose. Here's what I think is most important. I think white people need to talk to the children to their children about race and racial history. And one of the things I have in the book is a chapter on the untold. And it's kind of like a fairy tale, uh, or to some it might be a horror story, but it's this combination of, 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 uh, of, a, of an elder or an older or a, a parent talking to their children about whiteness, to their children about the history in this country. And, and what, our responsibility is as white people to that history. So I think if that conversation got normalized in white families with the children so that they understood their history, so that they understood some of the activation that we see at the social level, uh, some of the drives that people have around humanity, I think that would go a long way. So that's a real important um, offering that I feel could really begin to shift the narrative around race when we start educating our children on um, our history, uh, the history of whiteness in this country. And for people of color, um, the, the advice that I'm offering is, is that I, I, I think we need to, um, I, I'm offering something there around bid or pass, you know, and it's kind of like um, we can't, be in reaction to every um, act of, of uh, racial injustice that happens in the world. I, I think we need to care for ourselves, regulate our inner uh, activation, and respond where we can best respond with as much um, 
uh, tenderness and wisdom as we can, but not out of reactivity. And so I'm suggesting we bid or pass and see what it's like when we pass on some of the craziness and just take care of ourselves in those moments. Because, you know, there'll there'll be another opportunity around the corner or tomorrow. But to see what it's like to not be in reactivity to so much of the chaos that's that's around us and, and to use the practice to do that. And the other thing I think we're challenged with is talking to our children about both tenderness and um, and our our heroic history, if you will, the ways we've survived and kind of um, moved through these struggles, but to also uh, allow um, our bodies to uh, experience the traumas and to support um, you know, a space where people can, can't, hearts can break so that they can also heal again. Um, sometimes we push through what's difficult uh, without touching it. And I think um, because we're so used to having to survive, I would like to see um, our hearts more involved in our work and with our children uh, so that we can rest a bit in our skin and re-regulate so that we can respond instead of react. So those are just a couple of things um, in each of those. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot more in mindful of race. Now I just have to check on something with you, Ruth. I don't know if I need to use one of my get out of jail free cards, but you know, I did uh, say, let's start with what the white people can do because that was the order it was presented in the book and, uh, mm-hmm. and I noticed then I started feeling like, shit, I've focused a lot of this conversation on uh, recognizing white uh, privilege issues and, and identifying what does it mean to be part uh, as a white person of a racial group. And I thought, shit, have I, uh, have I misstepped here in any way? And I just wanted to check that out with you. Well, what do you mean by missteps? Because this would be my inquiry with white you know, with, 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 did I, did I not balance the conversation well enough? Hmm. Well, I, I, I feel like, um, you balanced the, I mean, I don't, I didn't have an expectation of the conversation being totally balanced. Yep. Um, that's not a expectation that I have. I do think that a large imbalance, um, around this issue is that white people have not um, carried their weight in the racial narrative as a collective. So I think that's pivotal in my book. I point a lot to white folks around waking up. Um, and um, I also point to, to, to people of color with a, with a different, uh, it's not so much a different message. It's just that the work is um, what we need to look at is so strong, you know? So I, I don't know if I would say that it's uh you know, I, I mean, I have people of color wanting me to focus more on healing um, the uh, the body of color. And I think I do a pretty good job of, of speaking to that in the book. Maybe not so much in the conversations we have. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I feel like the best offering I can make to the issues of racism right now is to have white people... Uh, wake up to whiteness so that um, harm is not continuing to, um, there's not so much harm on people of color. I mean, to me, that's just still the 
the work that must be done predominantly. And I think it would alleviate a lot of um, the burden on people of color. So this is my angle towards trying to make that happen. This is, this is one of many ways. There's so many ways we have to come at that, at this. And I wanted to offer a very pointed instruction on how we work with our minds so that we don't suffer so much and transcend this social, uh, again, chronic um, pain uh, and horror that we have in this country around race and the power, the powers that are running the show. I encourage listeners of Insights at the Edge to read Mindful of Race by Ruth King. It's a powerful, provocative, and challenging book, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. I also want to let you know that Ruth King will be at Sounds True's Foundation Event Gathering. That's September 26th through the 29th in the Santa Cruz Mountains. She'll be teaching on mindfulness of race at that event. Ruth, I want to thank you for your great work as an educator and a communicator and really a torch bearer of the healing of the human heart. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sammy. This has been great. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.